So that's what can happen when mother and daughter get along, huh? <laughs> Work together for the glory of God. Appreciate that. <clears throat> pretty, uh, pretty good talent to be able to sing all those words and play all those keys at the same time, isn't it? I didn't hear it all, but I did hear, hallelujah, God is not dead. That's one thing I heard out there. And, of course, he carried the cross on his shoulders so that we can start over. And uh, that starting over is a complete reconstruction. The old is gone. The new has come. A new creation in Christ. Well, good morning. We are in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, chapter 3 this morning. Actually, no, we're in chapter 4. We completed chapter 3 last week. I didn't mean to scare you like that. We're going to do chapter 3 again. Uh, We are in chapter 4, but we completed chapter 3 by looking at the baptism of Christ. And we had to look at it closely because it was a theological challenge, really, to not only John the Baptist, but to all of us, if you think about it. And John had a hard time with Jesus coming to him and wanting to go into the waters based on what baptism symbolizes. And John wanted to know or or basically needed an explanation of Jesus. Wait a minute, because um, why do you want to, to to stand in my place when I'm the one that is the center? You need to be baptizing me. And Jesus calmed John's theological quandary down his sense of right and wrong by in essence, saying, when you look at baptism from your mission, your mission and your ministry, it is a challenge. But when you look at it from my perspective and what I'm going to accomplish in my ministry, then it makes perfect sense. So John wanted to know, why do you want to stand where I am when I should be standing where you are? And Jesus says, I am standing where you are so that I can fulfill the righteousness and then you can stand where I am. Stand. Jesus is constantly doing things in our place. His mission was to be a substitute for us. And not only does he stand where we stand, but he also dies in our place. So it didn't make sense to John, but it makes sense now because because of what Jesus did in the waters. John himself can be a beloved son of God. So, in essence, Jesus came not only to live in our place, but to die in our place so that we can stand in his. That's the gospel right there. Jesus comes and fulfills. He wins where we can't win. And then he gives us life so that all of this he wins and gives us life so that we can be beloved by God and receive the blessings from heaven. And in essence, stand in his place because we have the righteousness of Christ. So that's the message that he wanted to uh, portray by being baptized. And it was a beautiful scene. If you think about uh, the River Jordan, you think about this baptism of Christ. And I think artists, a lot of times, they make it a beautiful scene as well. But I think not just artistically, but also spiritually. You have Christ coming to the water, so you have flowing waters, fresh, purifying waters. You have worshipers there that have come Because their hearts are broken and they're humble and they're repentant and they want to be right with God and they want to worship God. Uh, You have God's servants there, the prophet John the Baptist. Then you have the heavens open up or crack open and the spirit descends like a dove and lands upon or lights upon Jesus. And even this affirming voice 
from heaven, whether it was a booming voice or a soft voice or just an authoritative, affirming voice, we don't know. But this voice comes. And so this is really a heavenly moment, the baptism of Christ, a beautiful, beautiful moment. God's calling a new people to himself. And here's this coronation, if you will, of the king. So just a a beautiful moment in heaven. As we think about we close or turn the page from chapter 3. And we think about what just took place with Christ. You might ask yourself, well, what's the next step? Where, where does it go from here? I mean, he's just been given everything he needs, crowned as king, everything he needs to minister in the name of Christ, in the name of God, as the son of God. And I would think that after this mountaintop spiritual experience, obviously he's going out into the fields to reap the harvest. I mean, he was just he was equipped for ministry. And so now he's going into the masses to minister. Right. Isn't it interesting that that's not at all where the spirit with this, you know, the new anointing, that's not at all where he takes Jesus. He leads Jesus. As a matter of fact, it goes from this heavenly moment out in the wilderness. The spirit takes him even deeper into the wilderness to a more desolate place. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Rather than launching him out to gather his disciples, that's coming next. Literally is the next thing in the gospel. But rather than launching him right out to build a team, a ministry team, so to speak, and gain his uh, disciples to make friends. The spirit leads him to his greatest foe. So let's look at chapter four. I'm really going to camp mostly in verse one today, but I, we have to read 11 verses just to get the big picture of what's going on here. And we'll spend the next few weeks with the exception of communion Sunday, but take two or three sermons to really concentrate on what's happening in this passage. Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Can't imagine that. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. He said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands. They will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. When you went to school or college, you took your history classes. Do you remember what did your teachers tell you uh, that was the greatest battle ever fought in the earth? You know, what's the greatest battle? What do people say? Was it uh, the battle of Thermopylae, uh, the battle of 
um, the Spanish conquests? Uh, was it the Battle of Waterloo? Was it the Civil War or the Revolutionary War or the war to end all wars, the, uh, the world wars? You know, where, where was the greatest battle fought and when was it fought that ever took place on the earth? Well, those are great battles. Maybe you have some other battles in mind that you're thinking about. But I think in the larger scope of things, that this little scene right here and captured in these verses is one of, if not the greatest battle ever fought on earth. Because it is this battle that represents all the battles that have ever been fought on this earth. It is this battle that whether you've enlisted in the military or have any fighting skills at all, it is this battle that every individual must fight, no matter how old or young you are, no matter what gender you are. And it's called the battle of temptation. No one escapes it, though few often win it. So this is the battle that's behind all battles. This is the war that's behind all wars. This is really what life is all about or really where the battle is and what the battle is all about. Because this is the big class that we often hear about and experience in our own lives between the forces of good and the forces of evil. This is just a raw fight between he who has never sinned and never will sin and he who has locked into an eternity of evil and sin. The battle of temptation. Jesus wins this battle, as we just read. And Jesus, I think, really wants us to know about this. And I say that for two reasons. For one reason, that the birth of Christ is only mentioned in two of the four Gospels. The baptism is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. And then this battle is mentioned in three of the four Gospels. But not only that, I think Jesus wants everyone to know about this particular battle because he, he, was, the only, he was the only one there to know about it. There was no one else that witnessed it. This is something that could have taken place in complete privacy that we never knew about. But because Jesus wants us to know about it, he tells it or shares it to those who will pen Holy Scripture. So it's not something that he keeps secret. And I think he wants us to know about it. He wants us to know about this real and true struggle that he had with temptation, the sin that he faced to help us with our own battle and with our own struggle over sin. Wouldn't it be great if we did not have to face temptation? Wouldn't it be great if the fiery darts that we talked about in Sunday school this morning, those arrows of flame, never even came our way, didn't even pester us or bother us? Well, the Bible says that the day is coming when we will no longer have to face these temptations. That day's not here yet. And so until that day comes, we need to know how to fight. We need to know what it means to even be tempted and what does God have in mind? And perhaps most importantly for now, 
how to be victorious when the temptations come. We'll look at that over the next several weeks and wrestle with it. And I think Jesus will teach us how to apply this in our own lives. What it means to have victory over temptation. So here he is. He has coming off the heels. Jesus is coming off the heels of what we might call a mountaintop experience where his mission was affirmed, his sonship, his kingship is affirmed. And now he is facing one of his greatest trials, not the only trial or temptation, but one of his greatest temptations. Over the next several weeks, we're going to look at four different things in this passage of spirits leading. Then we're going to look at the king's fasting. Yes, we're going to talk about fasting just to warn you. You can start getting hungry just thinking about it. I know I do. Just the thought of fasting makes me want to eat more. We will we'll take a few weeks. That'll be two weeks before we get to that. Then the devil's tempting and then the king's victory. But this morning, I primarily want to camp with the first Verse, Because I think that really lays the foundation to help us understand this. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he's been crowned or anointed as king, commissioned as king. And now it's time to prove himself as the king. Now it's time to see if he can rule as king. Because it's, it's time for him to see if he really does have dominion. If he really does have the power to be the one on the throne. He has to demonstrate that he's able to rule. And that he has dominion over sin. Because of this one who claims or has been announced by heaven to say, I have dominion over all things. If he doesn't, if he sins, then we need to wait for another Messiah to come. Because the deliverer that will deliver us from sin can have no sin and cannot fall in to sin. So here he is. He goes um, after the, from, the, from the baptism, the spirit baptism, right into a spiritual battle. We'll look at that in the coming weeks. Uh, it's a warning and a preparation. A lot of times when we have great spiritual experiences, what happens? Tremendous onslaught of temptation from the enemy. And there's a reason for that. So he goes from hearing the voice of heaven to hearing the voice from hell. The voice from heaven just had one very affirming thing to say. The voice from hell doesn't stop talking, doesn't leave him alone, not for very long. So he goes from comfort to conflict, from strength to weakness. He goes from this beautiful scene to a place of danger, to a place of desolation, the wilderness. And what leads him? What leads him to this place of greater wilderness and even danger and right into the hands of the enemy, if you will? The same spirit, the, the, the cute little dove, if, I guess, if you, you think about the beautiful scene of nature, it's that dove. The spirit, the same one that ascended upon him, now leads him into this dangerous place. It's kind of baffling or mind boggling because, as a matter of fact, the way Mark describes it, 
It's the Spirit literally driving Jesus out there. I mean, it's just it's this compulsion. It's a strong um, leading that's taking place. And He's leading Him from the Father of Heaven to the Father of Lies. Because He has to face this twisted, ugly, evil foe as the anointed King... To see if he can prove, to see if his power is greater than his greatest foes. You know, God the Holy Spirit leads us, does he not? If you are a believer, if you are a son of God, you have the Spirit in you. But he doesn't always lead us to the places that we want to go. He doesn't always lead us to the places that are pleasant. But he always leads us to the place that we need to be. To make the spiritual progress to get on with the business of why we were created at all. And that is to glorify God. The place that the Spirit takes us is the place where we can glorify God. And as believers, we learn to hate evil and we, and we learn to not even want to deal with temptation. Really, We, want any, we don't want anything to do with it. And yet that's where the Spirit often takes us in order to accomplish God's will in our life. We have to face these things. A lot of times we want to ignore evil or we want to ignore the sin in our own lives. We want to avoid it. We don't want to talk about it. I mean, after all, we're Christians. Why would we want to dwell on this idea of sin or evil? And yet that's where the Spirit wants to take us. There's a reason for that. There's a reason that the Spirit leads us to face what we might call what our own demons, the, the, the things, the darkness that is in our own heart so that we can overcome them. Because part of glorifying God for the Christian life is not just living in bliss. We glorify God by what? Overcoming sin, by good overcoming evil. And that's the plan of redemption. It's dangerous. It's uncomfortable. Uh, it's scary sometimes to face our own evil or to battle these forces that we know are bigger than we are. And it's exhausting. But it is the place that the spirit will take us so that we might be victorious over these things instead of not talking about them or avoiding them. Christianity is a fight, as we learned in the last psalm that we looked at. I mean, it's a battle. There's a battle that rages. We need to have fight as Christians. I mean, do you have fight this morning? You have the spiritual grit that's necessary to take us from day to day and week to week. There's no escaping it. Though we might try to deny it. And the fact of the matter is, one thing we learn here, sometimes the spirit will lead us into what? A spiritual fight. For the purpose of overcoming. So no matter how old we are or how young we are, whether we're a heavyweight or a featherweight, we are going to face these kinds of battles. What we'll learn as we continue in this passage is that, you know, to, to be a great warrior in the kingdom isn't trying to make something of yourself. It's not about your own greatness. It's, it turns out it's, it's how well we empty ourselves. Because that's when we learn to rely on God's resources. And a lot of times we try to fight in the flesh. We try to fight a spiritual battle with worldly things that impress worldly people. 
And that doesn't work. We'll see that in a few weeks. Let me just say a quick word about the enemy or the devil. We, took the little, we talked a little bit about this. Of course, Sunday school, it's not unusual for it to be a foundation for what God wants to say to us in the sermons. But we have a, a lot of times our society doesn't really want to deal with evil. They want to explain it in a different way. That This idea of a personal devil, this idea of a personal being that harbors so much evil in and of himself is, is um, just not a very pleasant thought. But make no mistake that this temptation is person between person. It's the person of Jesus between the person of the devil, Satan. And we find the same thing in the New Testament. The New Testament writers write about the devil as a personal being that really does tempt and really is a force for darkness. Having been cast out of the heavens, we know and we learn. Having been cast out of the heavens, he is furious, a furious enemy of God's, hates God's. There, God, there is no good in him. He wants to be God. So God is his enemy. Not only um, is Satan God's enemy, but God is Satan's enemy. And he uses people as pawns to accomplish his purpose of defaming God. He uses us to get to Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I bear in my body the stripes or the marks of Jesus. He's saying that Satan, in order to get to Jesus, is, is coming through me. So we are often the pawns and we suffer the brunt because Satan hates God that much. And he does not want any glory to go to God. And so if we begin to make progress in our lives to bring glory to God, to shine the light on God, then we can expect intense opposition. C.S. Lewis used to say that. We often fall one of two categories that are kind of opposites when it talks about our concept of evil or really the devil. And we either give him too much credit or we don't give him enough credit. So those give him too much credit that they're always crediting all this evil and the power of Satan for this, that and looking for him in every little thing, uh, maybe living in fear, forgetting that he is not as powerful as God Scared. And other people say, yeah, I'm not even so sure he exists or if if he does exist, he's not really uh, evident in my life. I don't have to deal with him. And so some people overestimate him and some people underestimate him. And both of those positions are huge mistakes and sometimes fatal mistakes. One professor likened the devil to um the horned toad, uh, what do they call it, a, a horned toad in the southwestern regions. It's, it's like, no, it's a horned lizard is what it was. The horned lizard is an interesting critter, and it has a lot of predators out there in the desert. And it has learned to fight these predators off. And so it has defense mechanisms. One of its defense mechanisms is its ability to camouflage itself with the background and the surroundings. And its skin can even take on tones of light and darkness with night and day so that it can fade into the background. And what does Satan often do? Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 4, 
18 tells us. But he disguises himself, camouflages himself, if you will, as an angel of light. So he is dark, but he can camouflage or disguise himself as an angel of light so as to go unnoticed, to do his work without any kind of opposition. Well, another defense mechanism that this horn lizard has is it has this ability to puff itself up like a blowfish, I guess, uh, to make itself look a lot bigger than it really is. And I'm reminded of the passage where Satan goes around like a roaring lion. Satan will, if he can take advantage of us in this way, puff himself up, make himself look way more powerful than he really is so that we feel completely defenseless. Another defense mechanism is that uh, this lizard can also just play dead. So that when the predators come around and kind of look at it, it's lifeless, it's, I'm just going to keep on moving on and won't mess with it. And Satan sometimes will, will, will stay in the background gladly, uh, go unnoticed, play dead, so to speak, just so he can get his way with us. We want to deal with Satan. We don't want to fall into the trap of overestimating him or underestimating. We want to deal with him for who he really is. And this passage helps us understand that. So I think that to, to take a little farther to understand exactly what it means to be tempted, what's taking place in this transaction, I want to camp in verse 1. What is temptation? What exactly happened here? I mean, you... We learn in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus specifically tells us to pray, lead me not into temptation. And yet, what do we have but the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into temptation? What do we do with that? How do we reconcile the two? And if we are to pray that God would not lead us into temptation then why would the Spirit lead us into temptation? Does He lead us into temptation? I believe making sense out of this will help us be better fighters in this battle. We've talked a little bit about it before. The word for temptation and the word for testing, the Greek word perizo, is actually a neutral word and it can mean one or the other. So in and of itself, although our word for temptation in English, when you hear that word, you automatically ascribe it or relate it to uh, evil, bad things. This word is not automatically related to bad things. It can also be used for good things in testing. So it can mean to try to trap, uh, to try a situation that's set up where, where you can be trapped or ensnared in something. Or it can also mean the process of testing or the process of examining. It depends on the context and it depends on the intent behind it. So it can be tempting to do bad or it can be testing for the purpose of bringing out good. So with this in mind, from God's view, what's taking place here is a test for the good. From Satan's view in this battle, what's taking place here is a temptation for the bad. So whereas God wants to prove Christ's kingship, prove that he has dominion over sin, the enemy wants to prove that Christ is unworthy, that he does not have dominion over sin. 
Why is this important? Because things that come our way in life, whether we want them to or not, the things that, that happen to us from the enemy's standpoint are things to bring us harm. And yet from God's standpoint are things to bring us good. And they are the same circumstances. They're not two different sets of circumstances. It's just two different standpoints. So that's how we want to understand this battle that we're in and the temptations that we face. I like the way James puts it. He talks a lot about temptation. He says in chapter one, verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Same word for temptations. You could say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet temptations of various kinds. But he uses trials or tests there because he's talking about it in a positive light. So trials, various trials that come our way, he is saying we can actually be excited about. How could you possibly be excited about trials that come our way? Because they're not temptations that are uh, set to explode with bad and evil things. They are actually tests where at the end you can be given many good things. Gifts, presents from God. Verse 3 in that same chapter, he explains himself. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the trials that are brought in this situation are for the purpose of producing something that we really need as Christians. And that's something is steadfastness. Do you ever constantly just feel worn out in your spiritual life? Or do we sometimes, does our spiritual life um, just go oscillate or is it filled with vicissitudes? Sometimes we're at mountaintop and then the next week we're down here. We don't even know if God exists. Are we even saved? And then the next week we're back up here. What do we need? We need steadfastness to live the Christian life. How is God going to give us what we need? He's going to produce that in our lives through a variety of creative tests and trials. So that we don't have to suffer our whole Christian life through these highs and lows. Being filled with faith one month and filled with doubt, fear and anxiety. The next, there's a way through this. And that way is through steadfastness. So the Spirit will lead us into these kinds of tests. So that this um, aspect of character, these things that we're lacking, that we need, can be fulfilled in us. You know, a lot of times we're all about being filled with the Spirit. And we want to be led by the Spirit. Who doesn't pray, I want to be led by the Spirit? But often in our minds, we have a different idea of what that means than what God does. When, when we talk about being led by the Spirit, we're talking about what I want is I want to just live constantly on the mountaintop. Yet the Spirit will lead us to places where we have to face the things that need to be overcome in our lives in order to bring glory to God. That is what it means to be Spirit led. So God allows these things so that we can build spiritual muscle. 
Well, here's a question that I have often asked and wondered and other people have asked it. Okay, I understand that there's temptation. I understand that there's testing. But how do you know, based on the circumstances that are coming my way, is this a test or a temptation? How do I know? Is this from the enemy or is this from God? So I know how to respond. Do I say, get behind me, Satan? Or do I say, bring it on, God, because you're doing something great in my heart. You're building something there that needs to be there. Which one is it? Sometimes you might share something with a brother or sister, something that you're struggling with in your life, and they'll say, that's the devil. That's the devil, and we need to rebuke the devil. Then you go to somebody else, and that may say, that's God. That's God. He's bringing, he's, he's turning the heat up in your life. He's bringing the dross out of your life. But wait a minute, what is it? I'm confused. Well, this passage helps us understand that because uh, it's both. It is both. It's the enemy at work in this set of circumstances. And it's God at work in these same set of circumstances. And the enemy wants to cause us to fail. That's the whole reason for turning up the heat. And God wants us to have victory over an area so that we don't live our entire lives in defeat. And so that it brings glory to him. The enemy uses it so that we will be unrighteous. And God uses it so that we will develop Righteousness. So who decides which direction it's going to go? We do. James again, later on in chapter one, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. There's that word test. Same word. In this passage, it's used in a positive light and a negative light. So blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love it. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Same word, tempted, test. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, Brings forth death. So that's the same word there. The same thing. It's temptation for death or goodness for life. So when God gives us tests, he tempts us uh, or, or uh, allures us because he can't tempt. Take that out of the record. He allures us or entices us with goodness. Whereas the evil, Satan entices us with evil. Well, where does the evil come from? James says from our own heart, from our own twisted thinking. Because it's there, our desire to do wrong is there. The enemy plays on that and he knows it well and he knows our strengths and he knows our weakness and our own lust. But our nature has a thirst for it. So the thing to ask is when we have these things come away or trials and who isn't going through a trial of some sort? What's it been said that you're either going into one, you're coming out of one. Or you're just getting out of one. What is it proving about us? What is it proving about us? What what are the outcomes? What work is it doing? Is it speaking to our flesh? Is it bringing out the evil that's in there? 
or is it producing righteousness? Because the same circumstances can have different effects. So the person gives you an advice and say, oh, that's the devil. We need to rebuke him. That's true. And then the person that gives you the advice says, that's God doing a mighty work. That's true. Same circumstances. I think this is very important because we don't get the Christian life given to us always in these nice, neat little packages where we have this warning. No, this is definitely a temptation. You need to flee. Or this is a test from God. We just have to know that all these things that come our way are both. And it is up to our faith. It's up to the way we view God, how we respond to these things, whether we sink or whether we grow. So the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And, of course, he passes the test. Satan is defeated. But you notice that they were exact same circumstances. Another way to look at this is found in Genesis chapter 50, 20, very, very familiar verse where Joseph says, as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good. Perfect example, because what he's saying is, if you think about Joseph's life, he's saying, you know, you did me wrong. <laughs> if you sold me into slavery, you were going to kill me. You, you lied to my father about me. You bullied me. You put me in this pit. You picked on me. All these things. That was really, really wrong. But those same circumstances that the enemy was using to wipe Joseph out, to ruin his life, God was using to make him stronger and to build him up, to make him in the man that he needed to be to minister in the way that God had intended for Joseph to minister. God, turns out God had huge plans for Joseph. So all of these various trials that came his way were God preparing him, God enabling him to overcome evil so that he could serve in a very, very elevated position for the glory of God. So looking at these things from different angles and different positions, what we're going through, are we conforming to Christ based on the trials that we face? Or the trials that we're facing right now. What is coming out of us? What is being produced? Joseph could have seen his rise to the top when he eventually, you know, he, he'd be put down low. And then even in prison, he'd rise to the top. Well, then he's serving a, 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 a um, dignitary in Egypt. And he could have reasoned to himself when propositioned by Potiphar's wife. I've earned this. I deserve it. I've risen to the top and I'm in this position. And it's just a perk that goes along with it. And, gone, and he could have gone along with the seduction. But under those and, and succumbed to evil and, of course, plummeted down. Under the same exact circumstances, he flees. He passes that test. And every time we say no to evil and yes to God, it's like pumping iron. We get stronger and stronger, more and more powerful in the name of God. Of Christ, So it helps us to see the reality of the situations that we're in. Even though Joseph was in that pit, he wasn't over his head. God was in there with him. See the difference that it makes in our lives. So in essence, what we want to do is we want to find out when we go through these trials, not what the enemy has in mind for us, 
We want to see what God has in mind for us. Because behind every hardship, God has something in mind. And it is not something evil. It is not something bad. It is for our own good. For our own strength. Some might be thinking, but is this really practical? I mean, okay, this is... Should we use Jesus as an example? Because after all, Jesus is God. And was he even really tempted? Could he even really have given in and sinned? Can God sin? Well, no, God cannot sin. He is deity. But the temptation was real. John MacArthur says, Jesus had no capacity to sin because the power of his deity overruled any weakness in his humanity. He was filled to overflowing with holiness. But then if he can't sin, then can he really be tempted? And the answer is absolutely. And Hebrews tells us that, 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet with sin. Can we be tempted and not sin? Yeah. Hopefully you've experienced that. Hopefully not every time we're tempted, we sin. But the temptation, whether we sin or not, it's still real. So this is a very real experience for Christ. He was really under this pressure. And I would say perhaps under more pressure than we've ever experienced in temptation. Why? Because we're pretty easy prey. I mean, Satan doesn't have to bring out both barrels to get us to sin a lot of times. But uh, Jesus was very resistant. So Satan really, really poured it on, perhaps like never in history, to try to ensnare him. So yes, Jesus, this is real. In his humanity, he agonized over this, was sensitive to this. But Christ never fails to obey whatever his Father puts before him. No matter how difficult. At what point do we give in? What kind of resolve do we have? What kind of spiritual fight do we have in us today? Say to face what's tomorrow coming. To face what will come this week. How determined are we to glorify God in our lives? Because we talk about sin. It's not just sin in and of itself. It's sin against God. It's in a personal, a personal offense. Where will the Spirit lead us this week Where, or drive us, as Mark would say? And what will be the result? What does Satan have for us this week? Let's not find out. Let's find out what, what does God have for us this week? What kind of good gifts will be scattered throughout our days? Because God wants to build us into spiritual Strong house. That's what he wants to equip us for these kind of things. And by the grace of God, we will have these kind of victories as he gives us the tools to fight. One of those tools is truth. Through God's word, we will look at that. But I'd say this is perhaps where the real war heroes are. All these little battles that we face throughout the day. Whether we win or lose. It's these little fights, these, these temptations that come to us. And we all have our own. It's what we do with those that really make the man or build the character or not. The temptation. Can, 
Satan even tempt not just individuals, but whole churches in particular ways. Yeah. Satan can even tempt whole churches. And we want to think, is there a particular way? If, look at what our church is going through. What kind of circumstances or various trials are we facing as a church? And what are we going to do with those? How are we responding as individuals in this church? Are we responding the way Satan would have us to respond? Are we doubting God? Are we doubting each other? Are we just packing up and leaving? Getting, uh, living in despair, hopelessness, there's no hope. We failed. Think about us as a church. What kind of thoughts do we think about when we come to church? Because the Spirit is leading this church. And He's not leading us to a place of defeat. He's leading us to a place of victory because there is good to be had. But He has to build that steadfastness in there so that we can stand on that rock. Build on that rock, on that solid foundation. War heroes, the little personal confrontations that we have. Well, we want to learn from the king as we battle our temptations. So there's just a kind of an introductory sermon, if you will, um, to what we're about to get into and how to really fight the enemy. May God bless the reading of his word. And give us strength this week. Amen.